So I would start with first breaking down what is body image to understand how can we even grieve our bodies, right? And so um, body image consists of four kind of main components. So the first is perceptual, which is how you see your body, right? When you look in the mirror, what are the thoughts that you're having? Hello, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. I first met Fatima Jivanshi Shakur last year when we were serving on a mental health panel together for a large corporate event. And the minute I heard her talk about the experiences of body grief, I knew instantly that I had a lot to learn from her and that my listeners did too. That's why I'm thrilled to be sharing our conversation with you today. Fatima is an eating disorder and body image therapist, writer, and speaker. Her work is strongly informed by the health at every size perspective and intersectional approaches to healing. She has a special interest in working with Black, Indigenous, and other people of color clients. I can't wait for you to meet her. Fatima, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm so excited to be having this conversation on air since we've had some um, really interesting conversations off air. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here talking to you as well, Lisa. I think it's really interesting to think about the ways that our work intersects. Um, So very much looking forward to today's conversation. Yeah, I think the universe brought us together. We were both invited to speak at a mental wellness event. And I mm-hmm. think if I could, I'll speak for myself anyways, when I, the minute I heard you talk, I was like, I need to know this person. I need to know about her work. And um, it was just a natural fit to have you on the show. So I'm glad we're finally making it happen. The feeling is mutual. Fantastic. So we're going to talk today about body grief. And I think for a lot of our listeners, this is there's going to be a lot of recognition in what you're sharing, but maybe even the term feels very new um, mm-hmm. to many people. So I'm so excited to sort of dig into defining, giving examples, talking about the process. But before we do, of course, I want to start sort of with my opening questions, getting at um, how we each develop our grief beliefs, which is what I call them, understanding what we come to believe grief should or shouldn't look like, feel like, um, what the expressions of grief are. And I like to do that by asking people to share an early memory of loss and just kind of helping us paint a picture of what were the reactions and behaviors and um, of the adults in your life. And what do you think that taught you about grief? Yeah, 
That's a really great question. So my most profound memory of grief actually didn't happen when I was a child. It happened when I was an early adult. Um, And it was grief about realizing the experiences that I had missed because of my internalized beliefs about colorism. Um, I remember I was on a trip with my friends and me and one of my friends were sharing a room and getting ready to go down to the beach. And I was so concerned about needing sunscreen with the right SPF and worried about my skin getting darker. And I'm saying all of these things to my friend who identifies as white. And I could tell she she didn't know what to say. She didn't know how to react. And it was so clear to me that this was not something that ever crossed her mind. Um, and then that led me to thinking about like, hold on, other people don't think about this. Then what are they thinking about when they're going down to the beach or going for a swim? Um, and for me, that really began this journey of understanding my relationship with my body and holding space for grieving all the experiences that I didn't have or that I missed out on because I was afraid that engaging in them would alter my skin color and therefore make me less attractive and less valuable. Mm. Oh, my heart goes out for young. I'm sure it does for you too, young Fatima. But also I think a lot of us, I think especially people who identify as female in this country anyways, or a person of color or people whose appearance is so tied to their value, mm-hmm. um, you know, can relate to that. I'm curious, did you, was this an awareness you ever talked about with your parents in terms of like these lost opportunities or the fact that you were even having these thoughts that were preventing you from these kind of experiences, like normative developmental experiences? It sounds like you missed out. Yeah. I think that it was normal to talk about skin color in my family and it was normal to not engage in experiences for fear of how it was going to change your skin color. So growing up, like I remember in the summers, like we limited how much we played outside and what time of day we played outside. Um, because my, my parents would say like, okay, well, if you play out in the sun, when the sun's at the highest point of the day, you're more likely to get tan. Um, I remember like having conversations as a family of like, are we going to go swimming today or not? Like how strong is the sun? What's the likelihood that you're going to get darker? And so there were a lot of things that we didn't do um, because of that concern. And for me, that was really normalized. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I like when I started realizing what was actually happening and what I'd been missing out on, I think I initially felt really sad because I remember sitting in my house wishing that like I could be playing outside with my friends who I could like see from the window of my house. But at that time as a child thinking, this is normal. Like I, I just can't do this right now. Like maybe I'll go out like closer to the time the sun is setting or maybe I'll go out tomorrow. And that was so normal, but I missed out on so many opportunities to connect, to socialize, to move my body in ways that felt good to me because I was so afraid of, of getting darker. Yeah. I mean, we're going to touch on a little bit today, that notion of like 
bodily autonomy and how do we feel we have permission to be and move and experience ourselves in the world. But to sort of return just one final time to this notion of beliefs, it sounds like there wasn't a recognition of loss and that the beliefs that you had about um you know, not to being out in the sun and missing out on this experience were reinforced really mm-hmm. by your parents' own beliefs. And so they weren't seeing it as loss necessarily, or certainly not communicating to loss. It was just sort of a, this is how it is. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I'm curious if you've ever, have you ever talked to them in your adult life as you've come to, of course, do this work as a social worker and working around the area, the, in the areas of body, um, grief. And we're going to talk a little bit more about your career, but just curious, have you sort of had that conversations with family about like, you know, I really experienced this as a loss. I have. Um, I've talked with my parents extensively about it and it's really interesting to hear their perspectives on it um, because I think a lot of these belief systems are also really centered in, in gendered ideas Right. So in so I identify as South Asian and Muslim and in the culture that I grew up in, um, marriage is a really important part of the culture. Um, And for female identifying people specifically, your appearance, your skin color are, are all identifiers of like what makes you a good candidate for marriage. And that those notions, they exist with male identifying people, but not to the same extent that females are often told that these things matter for them. And so it was really interesting because for my mom, she was doing it from a place of, you know, not only were these the ideas that she grew up with, but in a way trying to protect and prepare me for the life ahead and wanting me to have good prospects of marriage and having a relationship and building a family. And for my dad, he couldn't quite understood that, you know, he, this was not something that he worried about because he didn't have the same gendered experiences, but he wanted to respect my, my mom's wishes for, for parenting. And so what I was viewing as a loss, they were actually viewing as a gain of like, we are protecting you and preparing you for the future. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you helping us um, understand those different perspectives and how two different people can look at the same situation, right? And see it so differently. But also something you said, I want to, again, think offer back to our listeners and remind all of us is when I ask these questions about exploring how our parents or other adult figures modeled grief, I'm never inviting us to, you know, judge or condemn our parents. Because as Mm -hmm. you said about your mother, your mother was doing exactly what she was taught to do. And what she thought was. And what she thought was best, because that's the only thing she had ever experienced. So we think about this in all kinds of ways. And I'm not, this is not, I'm not naming this as trauma, but we think about, you know, trauma breakers or intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. It's like, the reason I ask these questions is I want all of us to think about what are the beliefs I hold? Because so often we hold these beliefs at a very sort of subconscious level. And are they serving me now in this time or not? And if the answer is not, or not so much, or not some of them, then we have the invitation to do something about it. But so often we walk around unself-aware 
of how some of these mm-hmm. beliefs are harming us. And so just as a, like, if you're new to the show and you haven't heard me give this explanation before, I just wanted to offer that up is this isn't a judgment about ourselves or anybody. It's really just a simply an invitation to be really clear about how we want to operate in the world. Yeah. I'm so yeah. glad that you brought that in because I think intentionality matters a lot. And I don't think in anything that my parents were doing, there was malintention. I think it came from a, a place of really good intention. Yeah, And I don't think any of us realized until I had this experience of recognizing that other people aren't struggling with this. And I don't know that my parents even realized that other people don't think about these things. No, we don't. And we have beliefs. We just presume, you know, that the the rest Mm -hmm. of the world sees that way. And same, I mean, I come from a family who had experienced a lot of trauma in previous generations and the way they modeled grief wasn't particularly the way I want to have grief beliefs, but it wasn't really until I had a profound loss of my own that I began to reckon with some of the grief beliefs I had sort of quote unquote inherited that weren't Mm -hmm. really serving me or my daughter. Um, and so making those changes. So anyhow, I appreciate you helping us understand sort of the roots of, um, how you came to understand loss. And particularly, I think it's so telling that it's related to the sort of, um, identification and recognition of body and body Mm -hmm. value and grief around your body, because that's sort of the field that you went into. Can you tell us, just help our listeners understand a little bit about like the scope of your work before we dive into helping unpack some of these definitions and understanding um, about what grief is. I don't know that I've met a lot of um, social workers who are specializing in what you do. So I, I love to, I'd love for you yeah. to share. Absolutely. So I specialize in working with people who struggle with eating disorders, disordered eating, and with body image. Um, So really helping people to heal their relationships with food, diet culture, and their bodies. Um, And I think a lot of this started for me from a place of realizing that when my friends and myself, who identified as people of color, started struggling with body image when we were teenagers, didn't really have people that we could go to that could help us process and think about these things in ways that were culturally informed. Um, so that really inspired me to to join the field and, and do the work I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, it's so funny. Every time I talk to somebody, whether it's a nurse or a physician or a social worker, I feel like there's always, of course, some and the same goes for me, some route to their, our own experience, maybe of something that we lacked. And so then we had a curiosity about how to do it better. So I know um, our listeners and all the clients that you serve are benefiting from your curiosity to figure out there's got to be a better way to hold um, space and help the healing process for people, um, people in your situation. So tell us, like, how would you begin to say, like, what is body grief? How would you begin to describe what that is? So I would start with first breaking down what is body image to understand how can we even grieve our bodies, right? And so um, body image consists of four kind of main components. So the first is perceptual, which is how you see your body, right? When you look in the mirror, what are the thoughts that you're having? Um, The second piece is effective. So that's how you feel about your body, right? So when you're looking in that mirror, what are the thoughts that are coming up around your body? 
or sorry, not the thoughts. What are the emotions that are coming up around your body? Um, the third is cognitive. So what you're thinking about your body, which ties back to that perceptual piece of how you're seeing it. And the fourth piece um, is behavioral. So when you think about the perceptions, the affect, and the cognitions around your body, how does that inform the behaviors that you engage in, right? How does that inform the way you eat, the way you exercise, the type of clothing you wear, the kinds of social things that you engage in? So those are kind of the four main components. Whether or not you go out and play in the direct sunlight as a child. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so when we then think about body grief. Body grief is the range of emotions that you experience when you are sitting with the fact that your body might not be what you expect it to be or what it used to be. And, you know, when we think about the kind of stages of grief, right, there's this idea that you can move between stages of anger and sadness and gratitude and um, relief. And I think it's it's a very similar model in that your relationship with your body and how you feel about it can change moment to moment, hour to hour, and day to day, where sometimes you might have a lot of gratitude and feel a lot of acceptance around it. Other times you might feel really angry or really sad that it's not what you want it to be or what society has told you it, it should be. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. And we evolve and change and new experiences happen to us, new abilities, new things happen. So, you know, I I don't, I'm not a subscriber to the stages model anyways, Mm -hmm. but I think this is such an important realization that we are, our relationship with our bodies, which are just our vessels change over the course of our lives. So of course, our grief, our sense of body image, our the relationship we have with our body is going to change. And that will include some like acknowledging some losses. So of course, what comes to mind, one of the things that come to mind is body grief that happens when someone has some mobility change, maybe Mm -hmm. a catastrophic injury, especially maybe if you're an athlete or even if you're not, you know, I've certainly had folks on the show or maybe a degenerative disease or really any kind of disease that causes mobility issues. What are some other what are some other circumstances that might lead people to experience body grief? Yeah. So there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A few, you can give us a few. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the ones that can come up for people is, you know, as we age, as we go through life, it's really normal for our bodies to change. A lot of people will gain weight. You might lose muscle mass. Um, You might notice more like wrinkles and fine lines happening. Um, It is really, really normal for our bodies to change over the course of of many years. But I think what society tells us is that we're supposed to remain the image of youth, right? You're supposed to be thin and muscular and have no wrinkles and no lines and, and all of those things. And so that can be really, really challenging for people to accept that their body is changing, right? As they age and as as they move through life. And so there can be a lot of grief around what your body used to be, but also the expectations that you have of what your body should continue to be. Yeah. I think something you're pointing out there is a theme I'm thinking about is 
as I've talked with, of course, um, guests on the show, when I think about the what I'm teaching in my undergraduate course, which is there's some reasons that we naturally grieve the loss of things, sort of like as mm-hmm. we age, you know, musculature or, or being able to look a certain way or whatever those things are as we age or not waking up with aches and pains in our knees mm-hmm. or our, you know, whatever. So or that's even like, vision or vision changes. Yeah. I mean, I've got a, a few pairs of glasses now, right? So I think there's the sort of normative, but I think because you appreciate this, you're a social worker too, is I'm always thinking about the unnecessary suffering. So there's the like loss and the pain and the sadness that is really normative for these kinds of losses. But then there's the unnecessary suffering that happens because we live in cultures that have unrealistic expectations about what our bodies should do or look like or feel. And so I am always trying to tease that apart. It's like we can make space for the for the real response to loss that's happening as we can't, you know, run anymore or look in the mirror without seeing wrinkles. But we I want to invite all of us to have some agency to push back against is this really my own loss or is this because I'm trying to uphold to some as you said, we sort of have a like fountain of youth. Like you're not, you're supposed to look 95 and look like you did in your twenties now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not all Jane Fonda. Okay. Or whatever. <laughs> you're listening to grief is a sneaky bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, I asked Fatima to share how she helps clients separate or distinguish their own experiences of loss or body grief versus pushing back against the unrealistic and harmful cultural expectations we have of our bodies. Are you looking for more grief support in your life? Do you want a friendly and understanding voice in your inbox? Maybe some behind the scenes scoop on this show, information about the book that I'm writing coming out in 2024, or even thoughts on what I'm currently reading? Would you like to know about the services I offer? Well, I've got you covered. Sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakeefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why do I call it not-so-regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief-smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note visit www.lisakiefoffer.com. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you help 
clients separate kind of their own experience of loss versus pushing back against the unrealistic cultural expectations? Yeah. And I think before I answer that question, something that I want to highlight is in the U.S. especially, I think we can be a very ageistic society, right? Like even if you think about jobs, for example, oftentimes when people are in their 40s and above, they start getting passed up for promotions and for job opportunities because there's a lot of ageism in our society. And I think our society as a whole really struggles to value the wisdom, the experiences um, that people who are older can bring. And that's not the case everywhere around the world. There are cultures that value the elderly, that prioritize them. And so I think, you know, really the fact that body change is seen as a negative thing in in Western society is really a reflection of how much ageism is a part of our culture. Agree, agree. Yeah. And so I think going to your question of, you know, how do you start to really challenge that? Um, And I think one of the biggest things that is helpful is education, right? Like developing that awareness of Like these are the values that society has that I have internalized and that I am then acting upon because people don't often consciously realize that that's what they're doing. It's making those beliefs visible again, which is sort of where we started. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think education is the first step, which leads to awareness. Um, I think the next part of this is also diversifying the consumption of, of media right? So a lot of these beliefs are perpetuated by TV shows, advertisements, radio ads, um, et cetera, that we're all consuming, right? The type of media we consume might vary based on our age, but we're all getting it from from media in one way or the other. And so I think what can be really helpful is, is diversifying that content, right? So watching, for example, I really love the show Grace and Frankie, yeah. Because it centers the life of two women who are older and who are doing really badass things. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, or even shows that focus on people from different cultures. Like I really love watching um, like Never Have I Ever or Rami, who's a, a, a Muslim comedian. Like, like when we consume this media that shows us, hold on, different things can be valuable all at the same time, it can really help rewrite those internalized beliefs that we have. Yeah, no, I so appreciate that. And I realize we're already sort of diving into um, sort of how do we cope with body grief in healthy ways. And I want to make sure we get back to that. But I also want to bring out some other experiences or sort of causes of body grief, just so that our listeners can maybe even start to see themselves or someone they love um, in those experiences. So it could be you know, body grief, sort of pregnancy, whether it's Mm -hmm. infertility or post-pregnancy, postpartum, not having Mm -hmm. the body you want it uh, for sure. You started to touch on um, the experience of not being represented culturally, sort of thinking about the experience Mm -hmm. of uh, different people about 
what society through media and other outlets are telling us what we what is beauty, what is valuable. I think about people in the in the BIPOC community, transgender experience. Any any other? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities in the resulting affect or harm that's caused to people or the loss, but are there other, do you want to touch on either of those that I offered or other kinds of experiences that our listeners might be experiencing grief and maybe didn't name it for themselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think the the larger thing that I'm thinking about with all these different versions of what body grief can look like is this idea that society tells you what your body should be and you internalize that, yeah. right? So when we're thinking about body grief, it's this idea of grieving that your body doesn't align with those ideals that society has placed and that you may have internalized. And one of the ones I think I want to touch on more is the idea of, of what kind of grief can come up for people who are identifying as transgender. Um, and you know, there can be grief around the body, but also grief around the experiences related to your body, right? So a lot of times, you know, there's, there's so many stories of people who have lost jobs, lost family members, lost homes, um, lost relationships because of their gender identity. Um, and beyond that, I think, there's often when you know people are going through this journey of, of understanding their gender and exploring their gender, this realization of how they may have de- been denied or missed certain experiences that cisgender individuals experienced in their childhood. Um, yeah. And so there can be a lot of grief around like what were the experiences that I missed or that I didn't get to have or the parts of me that were not accepted before or maybe aren't even accepted right now? Yeah. I appreciate that. You're really touching on sort of both the ambiguous losses that we need to start naming for ourselves because we like to sort of assign, you know, loss and grief to sort of, you know, it's something that we can see like a death loss, Mm -hmm. but also the secondary losses that we really have to reckon with. It's not just that I wasn't seen or treated, you know, or seen sort of as I see myself or interacted, but then are all the opportunities I missed on both like retroactively, like I lost a job because of it, or a family member isn't speaking Mm -hmm. to me, or I lost my housing, but also the missed opportunities because we have the right to grieve the things that never came to be sort of the expectation of being a, a someone who feels a sense of belonging, which is our sort of highest need as a human being. And so a lot of times these different body griefs are the grief and loss over what we had the right to expect, but didn't come to pass. Exactly. Yeah. So not just the things that you had, but also the things that you didn't have. Didn't get to have. And I appreciate you helping us think about that in transgender community. I think about that a lot when I'm talking with people who are coming to grips with infertility. So, mm-hmm. and maybe they didn't experience something like a miscarriage or a stillbirth, but maybe they just were never able to get become pregnant and the losses of the expectation that they would someday be able to conceive a child and not. And I think it's really, these are the kinds of 
griefs that get disenfranchised so often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's I think there can, harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there can also be a, a grief around like loss of autonomy, right? So if you are wanting to conceive and your body is struggling to do that, it can feel like I don't get to make this choice yeah. anymore because my body isn't able to do it. And it, I think that can be really devastating for so many people. And it can really involve this feeling of loss of control. Yeah. Right. That I don't have control over my body. Yeah. I mean, what that brings up for me, which I've touched on on the show before, but sort of before we think about how people tend to cope with body grief, maybe in ways that aren't, are, are maladaptive. And then returning to this discussion we had about what might be a healthier way to move through our body grief. But that makes me think about the grief and loss so many of us experience in the wake of some sort of trauma to our body that could be neglect, mm -hmm. abuse, sexual abuse, rape, etc., which have their own harms. And that trauma results in a grief that we've lost. And one of the griefs I think about even for my own um, experience as a survivor of rape is uh, the loss of being able to move through the world with a sense of an expectation of safety. Mm -hmm. And that's also sort of, and of course there's the loss of bodily autonomy when we've had something done to us. Um, so I think about that, but how else are you, so are you seeing that with the clients that you work with? I'm quite curious, but, and what, yeah. what are you understanding about the relationship between grief and trauma? Yeah, I definitely see that. And what can come up, is oftentimes this feeling unsafe in one's body, right? Or feeling like your body can't be trusted. There can be a lot of shame, a lot of feelings of danger that come up around that. Um, and these feelings can manifest themselves in trying to control or change your body, right? So when we, you were mentioning coping mechanisms, I've worked with a lot of clients who experience sexual trauma and some of them have turned to binge eating as a way to cope with that because sometimes their thoughts were, okay, well, if I had been less attractive, then this wouldn't have happened to me. And I think with that comes internalized fat phobia, right? The idea that being in a larger body is undesirable or unwanted, but they've internalized fat phobia, felt like being in a thinner body was unsafe and turn to binging as a way to create safety and, and to keep people out. Yeah. Other times when I've worked with clients um, who were in a larger body when their sexual assault happened, there can be that feeling of, well, this happened to me because I'm dispensable. That Because I'm unworthy, so someone felt like they could treat me this way. And so then there can be the desire to to diet, exercise, restrict, to try to lose weight, to feel like, you know, if I have a body that is considered worthy by society, then society won't treat me. Mm, yeah. I mean, this is really what you're talking about. I mean, at a more deeper level, of course, as trauma responses, but what you're talking about earlier about the behavioral. So there's sort of like mm -hmm. the perceptive, right? The perception and the affect, right? And the cognitive, but then 
once we've internalized all that, then how do we behave to sort of as a coping response to that sense of self or maybe that missed sense of self? So you've talked about sort of disordered eating, ways of really using control or trying to find agency as if we can prevent or undo maybe what's happened to us. And again, I just want to say to our listeners, I, I, I would imagine very often this isn't at the like prefrontal cortex, like Mm -hmm. logical level, right? This is coming from our nervous system. This is a very core survival response. So you can't just say to somebody, well, just that's not true. Don't do it because this is coming from some somewhere deeper, I imagine. Is that it's do I have that from right? a desire to protect yeah. which is right? which is safety. That's fight or flight. That's you know, at the deep core level of us, which is why it takes so much to to move through that healing process, which we'll talk about. But there's other responses that many of us have when we experience d- these different kinds of body grief, and they they do have different probably resulting, you know, whether you're talking about body grief from a catastrophic injury is might have a different coping mechanism than body grief from a traumatic or sexual assault. But avoidance is one, Mm -hmm. substance abuse. Can you talk a little bit about some of these other sort of, I might call them mallet, you know, like things for our body to try to protect us, but that they become maybe maladaptive in ways that don't serve us. Mm Yeah. yeah. So I think avoidance can look like not looking in the mirror. It can look like avoiding social situations. So if you're struggling with your body image, it might feel really shameful to present in social situations because you might be afraid of how others are going to judge you. you. It might highlight your own self judgments when you're when you're in these situations. And so sometimes when people are struggling with their body image, they might avoid eating out at restaurants, attending social gatherings, the type of clothes that they choose to wear might be impacted by this avoidance. There can be an avoidance of intimacy, right? Both physically, but also emotionally, because you might feel so dysregulated and uncomfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Yeah. That sense of sort of unsafety. Uh, And I think with substance use too, you know, I, I think that can be a coping mechanism that someone might turn to as a way to dissociate and, and to distract from really difficult emotions and situations that are happening, but it can also be used as a coping mechanism to try to change how the body looks. So I've worked with clients who, for example, use Adderall because Adderall is is typically prescribed for ADHD, but it also impacts your appetite. It usually curbs your appetite and um, it can also give you energy. And so I've had clients who have turned to that as a maladaptive coping mechanism to prevent them from eating and to give them energy to exercise so that they can try to lose weight. Um, Nicotine and cocaine are are other ones as well. Yeah. And I want to sort of, return to sort of this array of sources of our body grief and say that um, whether these coping mechanisms are really sort of at the trauma level, they're, all of them are really our mind-body, which is one thing, by the way, mm-hmm. not two separate things like we like to think about in Western cultures, way of protecting us against harm or hard things, or which we sometimes treat regular everyday emotions as 
harm. And so part of what I think you do in your work, I know I do in my work is really inviting us to sit with how can we become more practiced at being with all of our emotions, all of the emotions of grief, being and being attuned to that so that we can um, soften the way we perceive them as being threats as opposed to just mm-hmm. being information. Right. Yeah. And then, and that's why we sort of es- do these different escape, you know, escape hatches to try to do anything to avoid feeling the feels. Right. It, I think this goes back to the idea of window of tolerance, right. Of like what emotions do we feel like we're able to tolerate and what threshold can we tolerate those emotions at and anything that falls above that threshold we may want to find ways to cope so that we can kind of dull the effects of, of that really difficult emotion um and i, I think I, what, what i want to add there too is that when when i say difficult emotions that can include emotions that have positive and negative connotations right i think a lot of times when i say difficult emotions people think oh sadness anger but For some people, feeling excitement, feeling happiness, feeling gratitude can feel like unsafe emotions as well. Yes. Um, Oh, I so appreciate you saying that um, because I think that is a really, I see that a lot um, in different areas where people are grieving, especially related to trauma, but even not, which is like, they don't understand why joy scares them or happiness scares mm-hmm. them, whatever. But all of those feel vulnerable and risky and can feel unsafe. But that's not at the intellectual level again. That's kind of at, at the, this at this deeper physiological level. So we've talked about sort of thinking about the expanse, and we haven't certainly haven't even touched all of them. But we sort of named some of the expanse of different. I guess I'd call them sources or ways in which we might have experienced grief. And I can imagine as we've been listening, most of us at least, you know, checked one or more off the list. We've touched on a little bit sort of the, you know, the ways in which we um, find ways to cope with those losses, maybe in ways that actually keep us a little more stuck um, in our loss or maladaptive. You started to touch on ways we can more healthily come to grips with and be in better relationship with our grief. Mm -hmm. Education sort of um, thinking about understanding different, um, actually, I want you to touch a little bit on them, but I know you talked about sort of educating ourselves, like things like thin doesn't equal healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on diversifying our consumption so that we're not inundated, but there's something in the education piece I want to come back to. I know you and I've talked about this before, um, particularly when we're thinking about people who identify as persons of color, thinking about educating ourselves against things like the BMI, which is used as this tool to sort of say healthy, unhealthy, mm-hmm. and the problematic nature of the BMI and why we need to educate ourselves on it. Can you talk a little bit about that? When we come back, Fatima explores the history behind the body mass index or BMI tool and how that can negatively and disproportionately cause both medical harm and impact the ways we experience body grief. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I am so fortunate to have so many incredible guests 
coming your way still this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. After the show, head over to Apple Podcast or your favorite platform and hit the subscribe button. Oh, and while you're there, if you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. Also, a simple and meaningful gesture of grief support would be sharing the show with someone in your life who might need it too. If you do it on social media, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW or use the hashtag grief is a sneaky bitch. Did you know you can now get all kinds of grief is a sneaky bitch merch from teas and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers. You can find it in my grief happens shop. In fact, I love that people have started sharing their pictures with me. So if you pick something up, make sure to take a selfie and tag me on social media at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'll be adding new content to the shop monthly. Next up is a series of merchandise I'm calling Cancer Can Fuck All the Way Off. Shop now for your own Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast merch by visiting www.lisakefauver.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Yeah, so BMI stands for Body Mass Index, and it was a tool that was developed like, gosh, like hundreds of years ago by a mathematician, not even a scientist. Let's just put that out there. Um, And it, it was tested on white male identifying people. And it basically tried to create this narrative of what is like an optimal body weight for someone. And so out of that came what we currently know as the BMI. And I think there's a lot of racism in how the BMI is constructed. And also it's not gender inclusive because it was only tested on white males, right? So what it doesn't account for is how people from different cultures have different body types. Um, And it also doesn't account for how gender impacts what weight looks like, what weight distribution looks like. And so it's this very arbitrary number that's often used by medical providers to determine, is your weight good or bad? Do you need to lose weight or not? Um, And it's not so black or white because what is considered a healthy body size for one person is not necessarily going to be the case for somebody else. And so I think a lot of people face stigma whenever they go into a medical setting, because the first thing that doctors often do is they take your height, weight, blood pressure, vitals, right? But your weight is not really an indicator of health. And actually, if you really, really dig into the research, um, weight, weight doesn't really inform the kinds of medical treatment that people should be receiving. So there's a lot of people who are in larger bodies who, when they go to the doctor and are sharing that they're struggling with something, the doctor will say like, oh, well, if you lose weight, this is going to be better. But there's no scientific evidence that weight loss actually helps with that problem. And if somebody in a smaller body presents with that same problem, the doctor's more likely to actually try to find the underlying cause and 
and to address that as opposed to prescribing weight loss. And so I think this is something a lot of people face, but don't even know that it, it shouldn't be happening and that it's not ethical medical practice. Yeah, there's two things that come up for me, uh, Fatima, when you say that. One is sort of the systemic harm that ends up happening because we've all consumed this belief that BMI is healthy, not healthy, which is like you could say, well, oh, well, that's just an opinion. But what you're talking about is there are real world consequences to the fact that we all carry this belief, including we being sort of the medical community writ large for one. Mm-hmm. But the second consequence is back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is that held belief and the ways in which we hear it from other people, including people of authority, quote unquote, which we often think about, of course, in, in our medical practitioners as being worthy, not worthy. So mm-hmm. we're back to that sort of worthy, not worthy. Like I'm worthy of care. I'm a worthy human being if I fit the healthy, quote unquote, correct side of the BMI scale. And I'm not worthy and not healthy if I don't. And so that's just one of the subtle ways in which we end up getting reinforced um, this worthy, not worthy, which makes us feel like our body is betraying us. We don't belong to our body. Our body isn't valuable, right? And I think it goes back to the idea of like grief over experiences that you don't get to have. Yeah. If you don't have access to quality medical care because of what your body looks like. Yeah. You might be grieving the fact that you don't get quality care that you that your maybe your health isn't as good as you'd like it to be um or as as good as it could be because you don't have access. Yeah. And I think that also comes with a lot of socioeconomic consequences because when people don't get good preventative care when they're not treated earlier on, oftentimes their medical issues are going to continue to get worse, which then can have a larger impact in terms of maybe they have to take more time off of work down the line to be able to to work through their healing process. Um, More costs that's sunken into medical care, right? So there's, in a lot of ways, the stigma doesn't just start and stop at the doctor's office. It really perpetuates and can be lifelong for so many people. It's sort of, um, yeah, catastrophic ongoing and, and, um, disproportionately the consequences are disproportionate in, and again, sort of, we're talking sort of Western culture, Western mm-hmm. medicine here. Yeah. So educating ourselves is really important so we can begin to sort of, um, loosen our grip on the internalized beliefs and misbeliefs. And advocate for ourselves. And advocate for ourselves. We want to diversify, which is what you talked about earlier about like consuming different medias that help reflect the versions of our bodies, whether it's um, our body in terms of a mobility issue or our gender or our racial identity, ethnicity, et cetera. Acceptance. How do we think about moving into acceptance. We touched on that a little bit. You know, I'm not a huge believer in the stages of grief because it comes and flows. So we talked about it's messy and unpredictable. We're going to come in and out of accepting our body for as it is. Mm -hmm. So that can be. And I want to highlight that more because I think you're exactly right. Sorry. Like I think there's this binary uh, conceptualization of the stages of grief of like you move from A to B to C to D. And it's not at all like that, right? 
really it's this like messy clusterfuck of moving all over the place. Exactly. (laughs) Which is normal. And that's where it's messy and it's unpredictable because it's also going to change as you evolve. Right. Right. So maybe today I feel acceptance with my body and then maybe tomorrow something new happens that, that is making me rethink my narrative of my body. And then maybe I'm in a different place of that, that grief process. And so it's not a open the door, close the door kind of situation. It's more this ongoing relationship that we have with our bodies that we are always processing and, and moving and moving towards. And I think what really makes that difficult is in, in the U S at least we, live in a very productivity efficiency based culture, right? Where like you want to get like in and out as quickly as possible, check the box, close the door. Like it's, it's done, knock it off the list. Um, But that's not, that's not what it, what it's like at, at all. And so in order to really be able to experience all the emotions that come with body grief, I think we have to be able to also create room for, for mess and for unpredictability. I think there's a fluidity to acceptance is the Mm -hmm. way I would think about it. And one of the ways I think that we continue to be in a sort of healing path, which again is, you know, circling back and loop-de-loo and all that stuff. But if we're like wanting to not be in the maladaptive space to the more towards this sort of healthy healing space is accepting the fluidity of our acceptance but the only way we're going to be moving forward is if we're constantly sort of having an awareness or an attunement, mm-hmm. like, oh, that's a an unhelpful thought. Or I've I noticed today I'm in a different relationship with my body that's negative thinking or harmful. So it's like mm-hmm. keeping our awareness to where we are in the fluidity of our acceptance, I think, is is important. And one of those things which you and I've talked about before, which I love, and I have to say this is my own work in progress around my own body grief in different domains is really helping us reframe we've we've commodified and objectified our bodies in this culture i mean when we think about ageism and standards of beauty but to really reframe and think about our body as a vessel yes can you talk yes. a little bit about why that is such a powerful important reframe for those of us who have some level of body grief So I think like you said, oftentimes our bodies are objectified and there's this idea of our bodies being an end to a mean, right? So if I have what I consider to be the ideal body, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have friends. Everything in my life is, is going to be great, right? That's often the narrative that is spun by diet culture. And I think if we reframe the idea of our body as a vessel, our body as being a tool that allows us to interact in the world, we start to remove that pressure off of what our body needs to look like and what our body needs to do to focusing on the experiences that our body allows us to have. Yeah. Yeah. I I, love that. That's, I think, one of the the most important things I've learned in, in doing this work. I love that. I'm kind of a big affirmations person. You know, I start my mornings with the meditations, not necessarily related to my body grief, but when I've noticed that I've been in times where 
I'm in that swirly mess where I'm, you know, mm-hmm. kind of having those unhelpful thoughts. I really try to stand in front of the mirror and just say thank you to my body. Like, thank you for letting me stand up in the morning. Thank you for letting me stretch my arms and just to really enact the notion of my body as a vessel that allows me to do the things that bring me joy, not get the mm-hmm. things or be to an end, which is what sort of what you're talking about. But it takes practice because we've integrated and sort of internalized all of those other objectified notions. So yeah, I love this idea of body as a vessel. And maybe if you're listening, maybe think about trying some way in which you can really offer that to yourself in an affirmation. Um, you know, one thing you talk about is also like when you're moving through some body grief of some source or some type, finding your tribe, sort of finding your people, which mm-hmm. I think is true for all kinds of grief, because there's something about being with people who kind of have a second hand, you don't even have to say all the things you kind of get each other. Why is finding your tribe and body grief important? What have you discovered? I think what's important about it is it allows us to have space for vulnerability and authenticity. Not everyone is going to understand your experiences and that's okay. People can be supports. People can be a part of your life. They can be cherished ones and they can also not understand aspects of your experience. And that's where it's important to find people who do because I think innately all of us want to feel a sense of belonging, a sense of worthiness. And when we're around people who can relate to our experience, it can create that sense of feeling at home. And so when we're often grieving our body, there can be that sense of alienation from the body of like, it's not what I wanted it to be, what I needed it to be, what I thought it was. What others expected it to be. What others expected it to be. And that can make us feel like really not at home at our body, in our bodies. But if we can find people who make us feel at home in our experiences, it can make it that much easier to, to really process that grief. I love that reminder. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just, I've just been thinking about doing a little writing about um, the homecoming that we all long for when we're in grief, because part mm-hmm. of what happens in these losses is the sense of, of loss of belonging both to ourselves and to sort of whatever the larger community is because our story has been sort of torn to shreds. So I love this notion that being around people who, who may be in the throes of their own untetheredness and their own unhomedness, but to just know that you aren't alone in your experience gives you that chance to feel rooted, right. Or to feel, um, yeah, to feel down. Yeah. Um, and the other thing it makes me think about is um, this quote by Lori Gottlieb, where she says, we can't have change without loss, which is why so often people say they want change, but nonetheless stay exactly the same. And the reason I bring that up is because when I think about body grief, it's this idea that a lot of times the reason we're grieving is because something is changing and feels outside of our control. And any kind of change, good, bad, involves some type of loss, no matter how small or how big that is. And and change and loss can feel really uncomfortable, really unfamiliar, and can bring up that idea of like, this doesn't feel safe because it's not 
familiar. Familiar. We are storing creatures. I talk about all the time that story helps us feel safe. And when we are going through some change where the, the automated story we have about our identity, about our ability, about our relationship to others, when that changes, you're right, we feel this unsafety. And I would say we can even experience that loss when we choose changes. So I'm thinking about women who, mm-hmm. people who identify as females who got pregnant and had a baby and were, are both happy to have the child and grieving the sort of pre-pregnancy body, maybe ability, maybe control the life, the control over, you know, bladder, whatever the consequences are, sleep, right? Yeah, exactly. So the both and, so reckon, but I love um, that quote by Lori Gottlieb, just as a reminder that change and loss go hand in hand. And that can even be the changes. There's certainly that's the changes that happen to us, the ones we don't have control over and the ones that we choose. And that doesn't necessarily mean we wouldn't choose them over again, but we want to get offer ourselves. I know one of the things you talk about is, and I talk about this a lot on the show is like finding compassion, compassion, both for the, for the experiences that we went through and for the you know, like the changes that happened to us, the changes that we chose, but also just compassion, even for our own struggle in our grief, for the mm-hmm. thoughts we have, compassion for the coping mechanisms that we tried that maybe weren't helpful and we're trying to set down. How, what What is com- offering compassion to yourself look like when you're thinking about the work you do around body grief? I think compassion looks like I'm trying to think about how to say yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking about meta emotion. And I think a lot of times when I'm when I'm working with clients, there's often meta emotion around the emotions that they're having about their body changing. Like, like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this upset about it, or it shouldn't be taking up so much of my brain space, or it shouldn't be affecting my life in this way. And I think the reason that that meta emotion exists is because there is difficulty in finding compassion for the fact that you are struggling with this. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I think a, a, about a lot and, and and talk about a lot. I love that. I I call that being a should detective. I invite people all the time to be a should (laughs) detective in our lives because it happens not just in our body grief, but of course in lots of ways. And I think compassion is hard for many of us to access because we have all of these internalized should and shouldn't beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so like anything else, if we want to become I don't want to say this, it sounds wrong, good at compassion, but if we want to invite more compassion into our lives, I do think we have to be curious. That's why I call it being a should detective to say, what am I not allowing myself? And how can I practice being with whatever it is I'm feeling as I am? I mean, I have a, you know, like there's this notion of like, of course you feel that way. I have a guy that I work with sometimes and she always calls invites me to call myself sweetie, which always makes me chuckle a little and slightly cringe. (laughs) But, you know, so like to say to yourself, of course you feel this way, sweetie. How could it be any other way? Right. Mm -hmm. And that invitation of like, of course you're feeling anger or sadness or, you know, confusion or whatever you're feeling because you went through this thing. Yeah. And I think that also encourages encourages us to challenge that efficiency and productivity culture yeah. because our emotions 
don't wait for our to-do list, right? They're not like, okay, I'm coming in at eight o'clock in the morning today. (laughs) (laughs) Like very inconvenient. Yeah. And so I think compassion with ourselves also looks like being able to invite those emotions in as they're showing up and really challenging that idea of like, how do I efficiently work through my emotions or how do I do it in the most productive and succinct way, but allowing them to really coexist with us, I think is, is part of that work. I love that. I love that sort of notion of like the natural ebb and flow. I mean, the show is grief as a sneaky bitch because sometimes the emotions of our, you know, it doesn't it's follow our productivity <laughs> and it's, it's not on our timeline. And part of why I think, I mean, and I want to just say, I know there are sometimes like you're on the stage presenting something you, yeah. Okay. Give yourself permission to like stuff it down and mm-hmm. pack it away. But for the most part, we want, the more we do that, the more backed up we get, the less we're, and the more likely we are to sort of fall into those maladaptive coping. So yeah, I think I love this compassion as an invitation to be with the sort of ebb and flow and the non-linearness of it all. And to recognize every single person who's grieving a loss is experienced the same thing. You just might be seeing people who are busy stuffing it down. So to Mm -hmm. compare ourselves to other people who aren't quote unquote, performing their grief in the way you are, is really not a apples to apples comparison. Because the truth is, we're all having this messy mush um, of untimely. (laughs) And I think also realizing that grief is not a problem to solve. Say it again for the people in the back (laughs) row. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's truly a evolving process that takes a really long time. And I I don't know that we ever reach like an A to Z destination. It's it's really this evolving. It's a normative response to loss, right? And so again, there's that compassion piece. Like if this is our normal response to loss, how can it be a problem to fix? And if we shift our perspective, we can say, okay, this is normal. So what do I need to learn from this? Because really grieving is learning is how I see it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Grieving is really learning. Um, so if, if somebody is hearing this now and they're thinking about, they're recognizing, okay, I want to make sure I become more educated. I want to diversify my consumption, work on compassion and the f- sort of fluid notion of acceptance. I want to sort of find my people, um, find my tribe, be sort of a curious should detective. That's my words, maybe not yours, but you sort of find that. I love it. And they're still feeling like they need other supports. Why is someone who has some training in body image therapy, whether it's a social worker or counselor, psychologist, whoever, versus sort of a traditional therapist, what, what might somebody be asking for or looking for if they feel like, yeah, I've tried all of that, but I need some additional support? Why or what would that look like seeking out somebody who has training in body image? Yeah, I think it can be helpful to work with someone who identifies as a body image therapist because there's a lot of training that they typically explore and receive around what does body image look like? How can it show up in all of these various elements of your life? Like like we talked about today, and can really hold space for for processing that, right? I think 
a lot of people experience body grief. And in order to support other people in being able to work through that, I think one has to work through it themselves. Yeah. And so oftentimes therapists, and I, I don't speak for, for everyone, um, but oftentimes therapists who specialize in body image have also done a lot of this work personally and professionally to understand how to help another person on this journey and really hold your hand through it and, and to bear witness on this journey with you. Um, so I highly recommend, you know, if you're noticing that you're struggling with your body image, um, that there's body grief coming up for you to reach out to someone who specializes in this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a phenomenal conversation. I'm so glad we got to bring our chat on air from the chats that sometimes happen <laughs> off the air. And I know our listeners learn so much and I promise to um, drop your information in the show notes today and you'll see us on social media when this episode comes out. But Fatima, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. I learned so much. Thank you for the invitation. I continue to learn so much from you and, and from all the guests that you bring on to your show. And I'm so glad that you've created this place in the world for everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.